0: very much. I grew up in Bristol. Bristol's my hometown. And uh, appearing on the stage at the Colston Hall, I have to say, is a bit like if you're interested in football walking out on the turf at Wembley. This is hallowed ground for me. This is a bit of a moment. And uh, you know, I grew up coming to see lots of bands here, and, uh, uh, and I never thought I'd stand on these boards. So I'm, I'm, I'm quite delighted to be here. And uh, this has been a, a key, and what I love about it is they spent millions of pounds building all this stuff out here, and this is exactly the same. <laughs> That's my kind of change. <laughs> so one of the things that I've been looking at, uh, uh, was thinking about the Colston Hall, was I wanted to start with telling you a story uh, if this is going to let me do what it's meant to do. This is uh, uh, Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. And, uh, and I'm reading a book about Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. They played on this stage four times, which makes this even more hallowed turf. And uh, in 1986... There were some documents that were found in the immigration on a waste dump in London that were from the immigration department. And they documented the first time Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band uh, came to England. I'm not going to talk about Captain Beefheart for the whole half an hour, although I could, but uh, it's just beautiful. So they arrived at Heathrow Airport. Their, their, their manager had forgotten, hadn't got it together, the idea that they might actually need work visas. So they arrived in drab 1968 Heathrow from Uh, from America, and this is what the report says. The group arrived together and presented a very strange appearance, being attired in clothing ranging from jeans, in inverted commas, uh, to purple trousers with shirts of various hues, and wearing headgear varying from conical witches' hats to brilliant yellow safety helmet of the type worn by construction workers. When they eventually approached the desks, it proved somewhat difficult to interview them as they seemed to think on a completely different mental plane and found it difficult to grasp the rudiments of passport control. (laughs) And when the immigration officers asked Captain Beefheart who they were, he said that they were pilgrims from the 25th century, (laughs) and that the camera around his neck was a member of the group. (laughs) And I come up with that story because, actually, I find, you know, I increasingly seem to be going to do talks in places And actually, when you go to talks, I'm sure Tim will uh, will echo this when he comes up, when you go to talks and you question the idea of of economic growth and where we move forward from here, you do feel like a pilgrim from the 25th century. And I I usually start talks by saying, um, for the next half an hour in this space, we're going to just discuss as though actually that term, when everything gets back to as it was before, we're not going to say it for that half an hour. This half an hour is a space to explore what a post-growth uh, society might look like. And so I'm going to kind of lay the same thing down here, really. And so that's what I really want to, uh, to move on to look at. They said there's a bit of a delay, they said, when you press the button.
1: <laughs>
0: Maybe I'll just say next. Would that help? Well, we'll see what happens. We'll go with next and pressing buttons. So, um, so about five years ago, uh, as Nick says, we started an experiment And uh, we've always seen it as just being that. So transition is one of many, many things going on around the world at the moment, some of which you've heard about today. And I think it sits within this whole, you know, things that are happening internationally, things that are happening nationally. Uh, But I think there's something emerging in in transition, which I think holds a really important uh, piece of the puzzle. And there are three things that underpin it. The first one is is peak oil, this this idea that we are at the end of the age of of cheap energy. Uh, The International Energy Agency who spent the last 20 years saying peak oil isn't a problem Anyone who says it is, is a nutcase, don't listen to them. It's all fine. In their report that they put out last year, had a paragraph which said, oh, the peak in conventional oil production, which happened in 2006, anyway, moving on very quickly. Uh, and that they're talking about the dark blue bit there, which is falling much, much faster. And actually, even that is optimistic if things from WikiLeaks are to believe that Saudi Arabia is infl- inflating its reserves by up to 40%. So, uh, but in order to keep that line rising at the top, First of all, there's the yellow bit, which is the the, the kind of fossil fuels that we have as we move into the second half of the oil age, which are things like the tar sands, where you have to put a lot of energy in to get energy back out again. But the thing that magically makes it all work is that lovely blue triangle there of fields yet to be discovered. Without that, uh, it changes quite significantly. And I think where we find ourselves now Um, is is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, really. That if the economy uh, improves, then the price of oil goes up and we can't afford it. And actually, if the economy uh, uh, continues to slump, then actually we can't afford it either. So uh, Chris Grabowski said recently that actually the thing with peak oil is not so much geologically when we run out, it's the point at which the price of oil means you can't afford to grow an economy anymore. And I think we seem to be very, very close to that point now. Next. Next. So climate change is the second thing. Uh, I'm assuming everyone here is up to speed with climate change, but it's one of those things that uh, that just sort of unfolds faster and faster and faster. Uh, last year being the hottest year on record. But often what happens is that these these things are all looked at in isolation from each other. I only really want to argue for looking at them uh, together next. Or did I press that? Was it me pressing that that made that happen? And the end of growth. I'm sure you you saw this guy on the telly uh, who was speaking about uh, the the, the real scale of of what's happening in terms of the economy now. I think uh, what was so shocking to people was he was, this was like naming the elephant in the room. Uh, That actually uh, in terms of growth, I think uh, we seem to be moving away from that at a rate of knots. And so for me, it's really about what does a post-growth economy look like? We're talking here about the end of the age of uh, cheap oil, cheap energy, the the end of the age of economic growth. But by definition, that's then the beginning of something else. And that's what I really want to go on and look at. So we've been talking in transition for about five years about the need to look at peak oil, climate change, economic contraction together as actually the foundations that underpin any decisions we make about how we move forward from this point. Uh, and earlier on this year the World Economic Forum, who, who published uh, uh, an assessment of risks for world governments, uh, published a report which said that uh, at leading a field of perceived economic impact and perceived likelihood of happening, actually the three most uh, uh, pressing high risks for government are those three things. Uh, but you wouldn't believe it by looking at actually what governments are doing at the moment. Raising uh, the, the speed limit on motorways, for example, may slightly, possibly at a stretch can't figure out how to help economic growth, but it also increases our oil dependency, and it increases that. Um, So I I want to really present the idea of of a big idea, which is about localization and about resilience. And it's what we've really been looking at in in, in transition. And, And by way of modeling that, I've brought along two different kinds of paint so this is, uh, this is your, your, your run-of-the-mill paint. I painted my kitchen a few weeks ago. This is why it was triggered, the paint conversation. And uh, uh, I could have used this, bit, a nice bit of Dulux trade. Uh, made from uh, petrochemicals, probably sucked out of the ground in Saudi Arabia, carted over here, put through an oil refinery, put through a whole range of energy intensive processes to make a paint that's then shipped around through centralized distribution systems, brought to a shop near my house. I paint it on the wall. It makes me feel rather queasy and kind of off-gasses for the next few days. And what I don't use, I have to dispose of because it's quite nasty stuff. Uh, And then uh, that's the process. Or this is paint that I made myself out of fromage fray <laughs> lime putty and, uh, and earth pigments and I was thinking as I was putting on the wall it went on very nice, looked absolutely beautiful I was thinking well you've kind of got two economies here in a sense here you've got a kind of a very kind of centralized oil intensive growth-based model here you've got something where actually uh, this using this would create more work for local farmers would create employment opportunities for local young people, making the lime putty. Someone to start the business looking for the local subsoils to make pigments out of. And it kind of embodied those two, those two economies. As does this picture, which I'm rather fond of. Uh, next. Which is from France, which is a guy retrofitting his house with straw bales. So he's externally cladding his house with bales of straw. So often in the natural building movement, we look at straw bale and cob and hemp and clay plasters for building new houses. But actually, how, what does it look like if we start to retrofit the buildings that we have using local natural materials? Certainly, if, he, if you build a house like this, you can train people up, you can get work going for local farmers, you can use more natural materials. It's a much more healthy process that actually, again, feeds into that positive cycle um, of building local economies. So what's emerged as transition has different qualities to it, I think. So firstly, it's the idea of transition as... as an inner process. It's not just a, a process of changing light bulbs and growing carrots all over the place. It's a, it's a, a, it's a process of supporting each other through times of rapid and uncertain change. Uh, it's about leading by practical example. It's about not waiting for permission. Uh, it's about just getting on with it and showing what's actually possible. Um, oh, come on. It's, about, it's, a, it's an approach which is rooted in place, so if you go to uh, in Camden, for example, in London, there are nine different transition initiatives in Camden. They're all very different and rooted in the place from which they come, they emerge in that way. It's about turning problems into solutions, and I'll give you some of those stories as we go through. It's, when we started it, I imagined it to be an environmental process, but now, five years later, it, I really see it as a cultural process. How do we change the cultural story, the story a place tells about itself as it enters increasingly uncertain times? And that's a very, very powerful thing, actually. And also, it's an economic process. Again, I'll come on to talk about that. And it's about telling stories. I think a lot of our role is gathering in stories and and telling those stories. And that's really what I want to come on to do now. So we just... um, Uh, published uh, a new book which is for sale outside which is called The Transition Companion which was the result of an 18 month collaborative process with many many hundreds of people uh, around the world who who, who are doing transition and the way that we kind of imagine it now is rather than a model where you start with this and then you do this and this and this is that it's very much an open source process uh, that people assemble in their own way Using different ingredients, and this is a picture of a a larder. So it's like you assemble the different ingredients. It's like making a cake. Everyone makes a cake. There are certain stages you need to go through, but everywhere does it in its own way and assembles those ingredients. So what I've done is I've brought along some things to show you uh, as a kind of transition show and tell, which has come about from asking different transition projects to send something that represents uh, a, a project of which they're very fond and of which they're very proud. So uh, I'm going to start with this. This is, this is a jumper uh, from Taunton and uh, transition Taunton Dean very early on in what they were doing started working with the local council. The local council organised for them to come along and run an event for all 375 people who work for the council from the chief executive officer down to the guy who cut the grass and the people who make the tea and so on. Looking at visioning what this place could look like as a more resilient, more localised Taunton Dean. Uh, and it's had all kinds of knock-on impacts, one of which was the council now runs... Uh, in the winter, they, they do a, a day where they turn the heating off and everybody has to come to work in a sweater and they give a prize for whoever wears the most revolting jumper to work. <coughs> then I hope you're going to appreciate this story because this was a bugger to carry up from Devon, I can tell you this thing. So this is, this is from Malvern, And uh, in Malvern, uh, they have 104 listed gas lamps throughout Malvern. uh, And uh, people are very, very fond of them. When C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the lamp that Lucy sees when she first goes into Narnia was based on the ones in Malvern. So at the moment, they cost a fortune to run. They use something like 200 pounds worth of gas every year and cost 450 pounds a year to maintain. So Transition Malvern's energy group, known locally as the Gasketeers, uh, came together and they were all the kind of lighting nerdy geeks in Malvern and they came together and they designed a kind of a makeover of the lamps which involved getting rid of these old Victorian bits uh, and now they use 84% less gas, they're 10 times brighter than they were before they're all maintained by Lynn who is uh, the, the UK's first female trained gas lamp technician who does the whole thing off, off a bicycle with a trailer on the back and now they're now planning to set up an anaerobic digestion scheme to, uh, um, to, to, to use local food waste to power the lamps. Yeah, give it up for Malvern. (laughs) Uh, These are two Brixton pounds. Uh, So Brixton was one of the first places to do a kind of an urban-based local currency scheme. So you can spend these in Brixton, they're worth the same as sterling. Shops take them as much as they would uh, sterling. Uh, At the launch of them, the the head of local council said, we want this to become the currency of choice for Brixton. And they've just issued a new set of notes that David Bowie's on the 10 pound note Uh, another colston hall connection there and uh, um, they've just launched uh, a mobile phone based currency what's that they've just launched a mobile phone based currency which is a really interesting innovation Uh, so you go and you just pay by text uh, in the shops Uh, but that's going to be scaled up here in bristol with the launch of the bristol pound there's a workshop about that tomorrow which is going to be the same a printed currency a mobile phone based currency for for a city on this scale really fascinating uh, uh, innovation uh, in, um, in Topsham, in Devon, Transition Topsham did the usual kind of stuff transition groups do when they're getting started. They showed some films, they did some talks. But what they found was that uh, it wasn't really gaining that much traction. So they, said, they sat down and said to each other, what is it that really captures people's imagination and fires them up? Is it peak oil? don't think so. Is it climate change? Doesn't seem to be. Could it be beer? I think it may possibly be, actually. And so they started uh, Topsham Ales which is a community-based microbrewery and they raised £35,000 in a share option uh, to buy all the equipment. It runs out the back of a pub, uh, but what they see is that, it, is, is that it's, a real, it's a really good way of starting to capture and tell stories about the place and the names of the beer uh, and in terms of what they do. And speaking of beer, again, you're gonna think I'm addicted, obsessed with beer, but uh, in Lewis, Transition Town Lewis, one of the really exciting projects they did, you may have seen it in the paper was, they started the UK's first community solar power station on the roof of Harveys Brewery, who are a big local brewery. Uh, and there was space for 554 PV panels on the roof there. And they raised 350,000 pounds in four weeks in a community share option. Uh, and the brewery Harveys brewed a special beer called Sunshine Ale to celebrate. They'd also brewed a beer before when the Lewis Pound was launched, called Quids <laughs> Inn. And I love the idea of a local brewery documenting the transition of a place through the names of the beers that it produces. Uh, these these rather lovely little things uh, are from um, are from Bell'size in London, and they are the Draft Busters in miniature. So Transition size do a thing called Draftbusters where they go round to someone's house and they run a course in how to draft-proof Victorian windows and doors by draft-proofing Victorian windows and doors. Uh, and the person who's the host gets all the stuff and gets their house done and all the people who come get trained up uh, in how to do it. And, uh, um, but what's really great about it is because there are now 40 or so transition initiatives in London, it's th- ideas like that can spread very quickly. So now lots of London groups are doing, uh, are doing this kind of uh, draft-proofing work. And uh, in Montevideo in Italy, this is the kind of thing you would give to a football team at the beginning of a football match. But uh, in Montevello they had a, a transition Montevello started. They started doing lots of talks and so on. And what they found was that there was elections coming up. So a few of the people said, well, we'll run, for, we'll run in the elections. And they ran and they talked about peak oil and climate change and resilience. Uh, they used open space for their uh, election uh, uh, stuff. And uh, what happened was all the transition people got in and all the people in transition uh, were still active. So they ended up with a really kind of good sy- synergy between the two. And one of the first things they did was pass the most amazing resolution uh, which talked about how the council and uh, how the council shared a view of the future talking about peak oil and, and limits to economic development uh, a commitment to uh, bottom-up community participation uh, to an optimistic approach uh, and they talked about things like uh, the, uh, fr- the 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 need for frugality and simple living which is quite an extraordinary thing so it's a real kind of state of the art what it looks like when a council comes down to meet to community that's very serious about doing this kind of thing This is uh, one I was just given today. So in Bath, uh, uh, Transition Bath, uh, there's a place called Hedgemead Park in Bath, which is a very prominent park there, and, uh, and Transition Bath have, been, um, have taken over the, a big circular bed in the middle of the park there and turned it into Vegmead Park. And they had lots of volunteers came out and there's a fantastic film on YouTube of the step-by-step transforming of this park, uh, of this this bed into a a vegetable bed. And this was the object that represented all the time the volunteers spent getting to know each other and uh, building community in in that kind of a sense. And they won a a, a Southwest Inn Bloom Award for for engaging young people in in growing or something as well. Uh, This is uh, some Garlic. Uh, from Slathwaite in Yorkshire, or Slawit, if you're from Yorkshire. And uh, the local grocery shop uh, in Slathwaite was about to shut down. And so Transition uh, Slathwaite, Marsden and Slathwaite Transition Town, came together and said, well, we need to keep the shop going. How, how are we going to do that? And uh, so they, uh, they bought the shop out, and they had a community share option. They said to the community, should we take over the shop? They said, yes. They raised £15,000 in order to do that. And um, once, once they started running it... They found that, as a wholesaler, if you want to buy garlic, the only garlic you can get comes from China. And they thought, this is ridiculous, we can grow garlic up here. So one of the first things they did was the Slathwaite Garlic Challenge, where everybody who came into the shop got given a couple of cloves of garlic and told, take this home and grow it, and we'll buy it back off you. And if nothing else, we'll be self-sufficient in garlic within a couple of years. (laughs) But what spun off that, which is really interesting, is that they is that they've now they, they started something called Colnucopia because it's the Coln Valley. So they're calling it Colnucopia, and they've just recently published uh, a declaration of independence from the globalised food system for the valley. Yeah. They've started a food cooperative in order to supply the shop, and they're starting a wind energy cooperative. So, all of these things are starting to spin off it. It's, it's really, really fascinating to see. Uh, this, is, this is an object from, uh, which is rather close to my heart. This is from, uh, f- from, from Totnes. And we started a project a, a while ago called uh, Transition Streets. And Transition Streets looked at the idea of, well, normally when you want to make change happen, from a top-down perspective, you think, well, we'll give grants for solar panels and give people some leaflets about reducing their... their, their, their energy use and so on. Transition Street says, get out, knock on the door, get a group of people together on your street, eight to 10 households, meet up seven times. Here's a really simple workbook that takes you to looking at energy, water, and so on, gathers data so we can tell if it works or not. There are now 500 households in the town who've done this. And what we found is that on average, they cut their carbon emissions by about one and a half tons. Uh, and there's a very lovely film on YouTube now which is narrated by Matt which is about transition streets because actually what you find with it is that although people should be really chuffed the fact that they've saved themselves £700 a year and so on, actually what they come up to you in the street and talk about is all the people they know that they didn't know before. Is the social side of it that is really really powerful Uh, and the projects that have spun off that 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 weren't there before because people have actually started meeting together and oh I now know Dave over the road and together we're doing this that and the other and I think it's a really interesting model so it leads to one and a half tons of carbon per household at a cost of 75 pounds a household and something that could really replicate out very very widely I think. And the last one I wanted to show you is is this idea about thinking strategically. If we're thinking about creating a localised economy in the way that we need to, it's not going to come around by accident. It needs to be really thought through. And what they've done in, in Norwich, they did this study called Can Norwich Feed Itself? where they looked at the city in the context of its hinterland and said, yes, we could. And they identified the amount of ground and the things that it needed in order to do that, which was a mill, new farms owned and run by the community and other things. And those things are all now getting put into place. So rather than those initiatives just being in isolation. They're all sitting as, as part of a wider thing. And lastly, I said lastly already, but I forgot about this one. So Bath, coming back to Bath again, Uh, a couple of days ago they launched Bath and West Community Energy which is a really exciting model so there's a few places now like Lewis and Totnes who are looking at creating community owned energy companies to put renewables in place for the community Uh, this is a really exciting model where they want within 5 years to have 11 million pounds worth of renewable infrastructure in place generating 300 odd thousand pounds a year towards uh, transition at the community scale they had their launch the other day a really really exciting model to, to keep an eye on could be replicated as well so um, that's my little car boot sale and I just want to kind of pull it together I suppose in terms of um There's that quote uh, that Milton Friedman said, you know, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies, to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. You not know, I'd cheer that bit because that's Milton Friedman. But, uh, but there is something really important in there. And I think what, what we're trying to do is to shift the way that we think about this. So at the moment, when we think about peak oil, we think about climate change, it's as though we've sort of spent the last 150 years climbing to the top of a mountain and we stand at the top with 87 million barrels a day A day underneath us in order just to make the basic things happen. But when we try and move away from that, uh, it, it's, like being, it's like moving away from something. This is where the government, what they're talking about at the moment, is really stuck in that, you know, we can't tear people away from their lifestyles and all this sort of thing. Whereas what we try and do in transition is to flip that upside down and say, actually, maybe we should go on. Maybe instead we could look at it as being like a deep, dark lagoon we dived into 150 years ago because we were told if only we could dive deeply enough there was wealth and great riches that would make us really happy down there and the deeper we've dived the more and more isolated we've become from each other it gets darker and darker and colder and colder and now we're sort of scrabbling around in the tar sands at the bottom looking for whatever it was that was meant to make us happy uh, but when you look at it like that, then moving away from oil dependency and high-carbon ways of doing things is a, move, is a move towards something. It's a push back towards reconnecting with each other again, towards rediscovering each other, and, uh, uh, and to feeling a part of something again. And uh, certainly, you know, if from the time that I came along here to the Colston Hall as a teenager... Uh, um, My sense is that actually my generation, the generation before that, we haven't really had a big mission as such, apart from to just have more stuff than the previous one. Uh, and what I find really exhilarating seeing what transition groups are doing around the world is that it's really about trying to get those things on the table. And we have some interesting signs now from places where things are getting really, really difficult that transition is starting to be those bits on the table that people pick up. So in Brazil, when they had recently the big floods, there was a whole town washed down the side of a hill. Uh, the local transition groups there ran training for the people from that place and now transition is the thinking they're using to, to rebuild that place. And the same stories we hear from New Zealand, we hear from Japan, uh, and it really makes me think that, that maybe part of the most powerful thing of what we're doing at the moment is starting to change the story, change the culture, uh, and... Um, uh And I wanted to just finish with a quote, actually, which comes back to music again, uh, which uh, I think that one of the things that Transition really is about is about engaged optimism. And what does it look like if optimism is the tool that we can engage from this point forward? And uh, on the sleeve notes of Velvet Underground, 1969 Live, there's a really lovely quote which says, I wish it was 100 years from now. I can't stand the suspense. Thank you very much.
1: Didn't he do well, that Bristol boy?
0: <laughs> I was wondering, are there any of it Rob's
1: schoolmates here? <laughs> no, maybe not. So it's um, it's clearly this is clearly the session about growth and about helping us all to kind of rethink it. And, and the, the, our next speaker, Tim Jackson, has just I think done so much to move us in that direction with his extraordinary book, *Prosperity Without Growth*. Um, and if you haven't had a chance, it's not a sales pitch, but they are downstairs in the bookstall. Um, Tim is the Professor of Sustainable Development at the University of Surrey. He was on the sustainable Sustainability Commission with Jonathan Porritt. Um, and he's also a playwright, multifaceted gentleman. So let me introduce Professor Tim Jackson. Uh, Thanks, Nick. Thanks very much. Thanks to you all for being here and for inviting me here. Thanks to Rob. Rob is... um, What he's done in Transition over the last five years is fantastic. And for me, he's a kind of daunting character because the practical, the pragmatic, the everyday, the reality of creating Transition is Rob's forte. And, and, And I'm a kind of ideas... Person. I'm, I'm sort of like one of those people in medieval uh, England who used to make a living off their wits by saying things which were uh, occasionally funny but usually just really annoying and saying it to the most important people in the country and, and hoping that you would either um, get some recompense um, or, or at the very least lose or avoid losing your head in the process. Um, and, and that was, the, that was a very, actually a very apt metaphor um, for what potentially happened with the work that I did for the Sustainable Development Commission. Um, uh, in, in my naivety, uh, we produced a report uh, called Prosperity Without Growth. In our generosity, we even put a question mark at the end <laughs> of the report. And we delivered it to Gordon Brown's government um, in, in April 2009. And it was just unfortunate really that this was the week in which he'd invited the G20 leaders to London to talk about kick-starting growth. This was perhaps not um, a career move of choice and made me wonder if this this itinerant um, ideas merchant was really what I was cut out for and whether I might be better going back to, to these pragmatic things. And Rob's talk actually reminded me that there are some wonderfully pragmatic things to do and, 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 and just as simple as keeping out the draughts is is one of them. And, and strangely, it is something that I can do myself. I can actually do this. I did it a few years ago. And I was, I was doing it on, on a house um, that we'd just moved into and my little um, then five-year-old daughter came up to me and watched me very seriously for a while uh, as I was doing this draught stripping. And after a while, she said, Daddy, will this really keep out the giraffes? <laughs> you can hear the five-year-old mind working, you know, this underlying anxiety. Where, where did these giraffes come from? How did they get in the back garden? Will they, will they trip us up on our way to school? What, sh- what should we do if there are too many giraffes in the world? And... and um, at late, a little later that year, I took them to, um, to, uh, to see some giraffes. And strangely, these ones were in the South Lakes Animal Park. Um, climate change creeping ever further north. What these giraffes made of the South Lakes Animal Park, I have no idea. But, the, but this sense, actually, that giraffes were lovely, elegant creatures, I think, eventually assuaged the anxiety. The anxiety that even at five, year, five years old, the, 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 the nice, neat, confines of our world can be subject to enormous challenges. This idea, actually, that reality itself can, in some sense, be overturned, that our sense of what the pragmatic is has to go through revolution. This anxiety, it's an anxiety that that is very familiar to us now, I think, very familiar to us now. And it's it's tempting, I think, to um, believe that this is a purely contingent phenomenon, that it's something about modernity, that it's something that we created um, through uh, our failure to regulate institutions, through the greed of unscrupulous bankers, through um, a set of common agricultural policies that didn't recognize ecological reality. I would like to suggest that actually it's been there longer. It is a sort of fundamental element of the human condition, it's a part of who we are, it's a part of the challenge of being human actually, that this anxiety lives within us and that the choice that we have to make essentially is either to deny that anxiety and to create institutions that deny it and to evade it and to escape from it. The Denial of death, for example, is is one element of, of that anxiety. It's something that the philosopher Ernst Becker wrote about in the mid 1970s uh, with fantastic eloquence that we created a society that somehow denied death by forever creating the art of the possible, the art of the new, the regeneration of material objects in satisfaction of some ever elusive quality of the good life. That this is one of our choices and the other is to embrace anxiety itself, to embrace uncertainty in life, to embrace actually part of the human condition, even dare I say it, to embrace death in some form or another. And this, I think, um, is, is where I would really like to concentrate not on my work specifically, not on the growth debate specifically, but actually on the work of of schumacher himself because it seems to me that he saw these things and he prefigured them i I remember when i when i started out on my career i read um, the problem of production which is the first chapter in in small is beautiful and i was completely blown away by it i was blown away partly because he wrote Beautifully, he articulated himself uh, in in very elegant ways, and because of this clarity of insight into the issues, the problem of production has not been solved. He says in the first line of of that chapter in Small is Beautiful, and it is it, in a way it, it relates to my point about anxiety. We make a choice here. Do we choose to accept that we have? an ignorance within us? Do we choose to accept that we haven't solved all the problems? Are we prepared, are we big enough to stand up and say we do not understand these things? We're confronted with problems that we simply have not solved. Or do we say, this is how the world works, this is how we go forwards. Production works like this. If we make it more efficient, it will solve the problems. Technology will deliver the solutions to us because we are so clever. These are, again, choices. And and I think what Schumacher was pointing out in, in, in the problem of production was that we have not addressed, we have not confronted those issues, that we've created... Uh, an industrial system which degrades the natural environment, which exploits people, which fails to deliver the goods that we would like to serve in our aspiration of the good life. And perhaps even more fundamentally, it has never recognized who we are as human beings. It has never recognized the anxiety, it's never recognized the existential nature of what it means to be a mortal being on a finite planet. It has taunted us, tainted us, it's lured us with visions of eternal life, a sense of ever better world with greater and greater material satisfactions. And in the process of doing that, it's robbed us of any kind of hope that we can achieve any of that. These, are, these were radical ideas. They, they were incredible insights of vision. They set me, interestingly, on a path that was almost entirely instrumentalist at the time. I spent about 10 years really thinking, well, if you know we haven 't solved the problem of production that 's what I have to do let 's go and solve the problem of production. so I thought a lot about clean production and green technology and renewable energy, and I did a lot of work, which I, I believe is still is very valuable work for people to be doing in moving technology in moving production towards a place where it was more in harmony with nature, where it fulfilled our needs. A sense of production has actually put the needs of human beings at the heart of it. Our needs for health, our needs for education, our needs for leisure, our needs for participation in in the life of our society, our needs for community, our need for the love of our friends, our need to be able to sit in a safe place and be anxious and face that anxiety. And to celebrate it in some sense, to celebrate that it is the most common feature of our existence. And when I was asked to come here, um, I went back to um, the problem of production to reread it again, and I was astonished, actually, to find not only that Schumacher had pointed to this problem and identified the ways that production has to change but also that he had seen those deeper issues, that he had articulated them. He had also, interestingly, articulated that very fundamental questioning about economic growth, which it took me another 10 to 15 years to get back to in my career and become um, so troublesome for the UK government in, in articulating. He had seen that in that very early essay. And he had also seen, again, which took me... A lot longer to find that the the main challenge in articulating a different path is in fact to create a different economics and in a later chapter as I'm sure many of you know he talked about a Buddhist economics he contrasted uh, a Buddhist economics with a conventional economics and he, he focused on on a number, of, a number of issues, a number of things which, which again, when I reread the work, were, were astonishing in the foresight that they had in pointing us directions for change. For example, he talks about the nature of work. Now, this is fantastic uh, contrast between the way that a modern economy thinks about work and a modern economist thinks about work and a way in which a Buddhist economist might think about work. And and Schumacher writes, in the conventional economy, the ideal from the point of view of the employer is to have output without employees. And the ideal from the point of view of the employee is to have income without employment. And uh, this is a, a wonderful world. It is clearly a wonderful vision, but what it leads to turns out to be a kind of meaninglessness. It leads to something called the division of labor, the ever smaller division of work into small repetitive tasks that can be carried out very efficiently, first by thinking human beings, and then by human beings who've had almost all capacity of thought robbed from them by the task itself, and then later even they are dispensable and they're replaced by machines. And this is logical from the point of view of the conventional economy. A division of labour into meaningless repetitive work. It leads as well to the concept of labour productivity. If I'm an employer, I, I don't want these costs. Who are these people clogging up my factories? Why can I not do with more? Why can I not ask them to do more in each hour of work than they did before? And therefore I would get more money for less uh, work myself, and and I would have fewer employees to worry about. Labour productivity, it's called in the jargon of economics. And it lures us, it lures economics forwards. It tells us that the world is getting more efficient. It reduces the costs of the things that we have to buy. And simultaneously, it drives people out of work. If we can't grow the economy faster and faster, in the face of labour productivity, we are always looking at more and more people out of work. It's a, it's a split dynamics, it's a dynamics, it's a double-edged sword. It's, it's actually at the heart of it a kind of fetish of enormous proportions that la- the economists simply still do not get. The continual pursuit of labour productivity robs work of its meaning. It robs human labour of the services that we share and it robs our economy of the ability to be stable without endlessly growing. And this, um, this has real repercussions for the quality of our working lives. So we ask our doctors, for example, to see more and more patients each day. We ask our teachers to teach bigger and bigger classroom sizes. We ask, I, I suppose, in the extreme our orchestras to play Beethoven sonatas faster and faster um, so that we can get a few more in and charge a few more bucks for the performance. This actually, interestingly, this example of the orchestra was pointed out by a very, very conventional economist called Baumol uh, a few years ago. And it it led to something called um, Baumol's paradox that essentially an economy that is attempting to deliver meaningful services eventually just has to slow down because you rob the services of meaning when you take the human content out of them. And this fundamental insight just goes by the board in relation to conventional economics. Schumacher also pointed out um, that this function of work, this division of work, really, is, is a very, very odd one. It, it's, it's, a, it's a world in which what we do is we work as hard as we can to earn as much money as we can so that we can then go out and enjoy ourselves. This complete split, a division between who we are as working beings and who we are as living human beings. Um, And it fails to pick up what Schumacher called the idea that the function of work, the Buddhist idea that the function of work has at least three really important characteristics. One is that it, it gives people, us, a chance to utilize and to develop ourselves, our faculties. Two is that it enables, them, enables us t- to overcome our egocentricness by joining forces with other people in a common task. And, and three is almost in that order is that it brings forth the goods and services needed for what he called a becoming existence. So this, it is ultimately only this third task, and in a very distorted way, that conventional economics ever sees. And it neglects, actually, the entire idea that work and leisure, again in Schumacher's words, are complementary parts of the same living process. They cannot be separated without destroying the joy of work and the bliss of leisure. Lovely poetic language, prefiguring actually one of the key dilemmas of our time. How is it possible to keep people employed meaningfully in an economy that has been driven to the brink of collapse by the pursuit of labor productivity? These were uh, very, very simple insights uh, expressed incredibly Clearly, at a time when we would have had um, much more opportunity I think to escape from the anxieties that face us now, and, and foremost almost amongst those anxieties, it seems to me is that we are in a situation of collapse of near collapse it, this you don 't need me to say this to you. you. all you had to do was to turn on the television and listen to Mervyn King talking about another 75 billion pounds of quantitative easing. Now, I'm I'm going to do a short diversion here because I know that none of you want tea. uh, You really hate music and you certainly don't want to enjoy the concert tonight. And I thought I'd give you a a potted uh, explanation of what quantitative easing actually is. (laughs) Um, I have some slides and I hope they're going to be quicker than Rob's to get through because there's about 42 of them. Um, (laughs) In very, very brief terms, this used to be called helicopter money, it used to be called dropping money over, over the economy so that you could get things back going again. This is a lie, this is not helicopter money. If you drop helicopter money on a city, people have a decent, honest chance in the scrabble to pick up the £20 notes. This money in quantitative easing, and we should be absolutely clear about this, is being used in deeply inequitable ways. It is a rebuying by the central bank of bonds previously purchased by private corporations and commercial banks at exalted prices. What does it do? It puts money directly into the pockets of the banks and the private corporations who have previously purchased government bonds. In the same process, it systematically robs ordinary people of one of the most important vehicles for long-term savings, which is government bonds. This is a situation which is taking money from the poorest, from the ordinary taxpayer, and pushing it once again into the pockets of those who were the architects of collapse, it is a situation anyone anyone who has understood the dynamics of this over the last three years, i think has been I, I certainly have been completely um, dumbstruck that we haven't seen a public response. We haven't seen public outrage. And I think we're beginning to see that. I think we're beginning to see it. We saw it a little bit in London in August. We are seeing it quite definitely in Occupy Wall Street. these, These are, I think, social events of enormous significance. People understanding for the first time Incredible injustices are being propagated in the name of defending a system which is literally bankrupt. And so this... <laughs> this is a point of change. It's, it's a point of movement. It's a point where I don't know how many of you saw, who did see that um, trader uh, that, that Rob showed the picture of on the BBC? I mean, it was... To me, an extraordinary moment. I mean, you could you could see the face of the interviewer um, as as she reflected on what he was saying, and it and it was it was an extraordinary story. Partly because it said there is an elephant in the room. This is how the financial system is working, but also because actually, what this guy was saying was, I'm right to tell you this, and I'm right to tell you this because it's a really positive moment in time and it's a really positive moment in time because if you know what's happening you can make money out of it. And so what I'm doing, I'm a really nice guy, is I'm telling you right now that if you want to make a lot of money there's money to be made if you can figure out how to get the better of this collapse. What he forgot to say, of course, is that you are profiting from an enormous distress to the majority of humanity. What he forgot to say was that this is deeply immoral. What he forgot to say was not everybody can achieve this. What he forgot to say is there is no ethical basis for this kind of behavior. And again, I think this is what Schumacher was pointing to when he talked about a Buddhist uh, economics. He, he was saying that actually at heart, these anxious people are moral people. He was saying that our humanity hangs in the balance here, that it's misrepresented by conventional economics. He was arguing, I think, that there is within us, of course, a very selfish, materialist, self-centered tendency actually i had personal experience of this on my way here today i i haven't had a car for quite some time and i was walking to the station and i passed um a car showroom and there was the most amazing shiny black jaguar sports car sitting outside and and i began to ask myself the question should i uh, dedicate percentage of my profits from Prosperity Without Growth to uh, Rainforest Protection. Um, I know I put it on the back of the book, um, but, but it really, this, this is the most beautiful symbol of novelty. This is the ultimate cure for the anxiety that hits men of a certain age. <laughs> as they progress, as they journey through life, and this would also make my journey so much more comfortable I would, I, would, I would draw up at traffic lights and people would notice me. I, I would be there for them. And, and, and I, I, you know, I think it's, it's right to recognize that we have this part of us. This is part of our nature too. It's not at all about saying that we are all wonderful, rosy, altruistic people. Even I know that isn't true. Uh, but it, it is also about balance. It's about the balance between our care for ourselves and our concern for others. It's a balance between novelty, our our intense desire for novelty. Novelty signals hope to us. It gives us this shiny, bright future, which is better for us and our children. But it's balanced always by by a sense of tradition. And yet what we've done in modern institutions, in modern economics, particularly, is to concentrate on one thing, on these selfish, novelty-seeking consumers. And we've said to the entire populations, this is who you are. And then we wonder, governments wonder, why is it so difficult to get people to change? Why can't we stop people being these consumers? Because for five, six decades, you've told people how to behave. Even when they didn't want to, you insisted on asking them to go out and extend their credit card debt, to, to spend money they don't have on things they don't need, to create impressions that won't last on people they don't care about. Uh, there are journeys here. Uh, this journey is coming, is coming to an end. The, there are journeys on foot, Satish Kumar. There are journeys on bikes, Schumacher Junior. Uh, best of luck with that. Um, My own journeys on bike, again, I'm always in awe of people who have these pragmatic capabilities. My own journeys on bike uh, really only go as far as cycling down something called the Blackwater Valley Path from the station in North Camp to my hometown in Farnham, where you reach uh, something called the Shepherd and Flock Roundabout. I don't know if anyone is familiar with that. This is a three-lane roundabout. And you get to the end of this lovely bicycle path, and, and there's a little sign which says just two words, cyclists dismount. <laughs> and, and you look at the 3 rain highway and, 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 and dismount and what? Dismount and die. Is, is, this, is this the ultimate? Is this all you can tell me about this particular journey? We, we, we are confronted with anxieties. We are confronted with real anxieties. Those anxieties are beginning to play themselves out in dark ways in the system around us. But the biggest, the most exciting, the most important journey of all actually is the inner journey. It is the journey of understanding of who we are in this world at this point in time. It is, I I would argue, the most exciting time to be alive and to remember again those visionaries who came before us and who pointed to The roots, the real pragmatic roots for a different kind of world and a different kind of economics. Balance, vision, compassion, and a sense of right livelihood, of being well with the world. All these influences are there. They are there for the taking. The task now, it seems to me, is to move forwards in the most pragmatic ways that we can um, and to achieve the change that is owing to us. Thank you very much.
0: We're going to have a chat uh, now amongst the uh, speakers who are